Hi there, I'm Taylor Nicole Rogers. Normally, I'm the FT's U.S. Labor and Equality Correspondent, but this week I'm hosting the show for Lila. And I recently watched this film. It's a documentary, and it's called The Earth is Blue as an Orange. It was shot in 2017 in an area of eastern Ukraine where fighting has been going on. But really, it's more of a family portrait. There's a mom and four children, and they make an amateur film about what it is like to live in a war zone. That's kind of the whole plot. The film starts with a scene in which everyone in the household is going about their business. Miroslava, the eldest daughter, is unscrewing a light bulb from a plastic bucket, which she is making into a movie light. She lines the bucket with aluminum foil while a kitten meows in the background. Nastia, the second oldest, helps Miroslava to tape up a piece of black cloth for the background. One by one, the family members sit down on a stool to talk on camera about what war means to them. But then, an impossibly loud noise erupts. A shell has hit the neighboring house. And now, the family's huddled in blankets on the floor of a windowless room. What role does art play during war? It's something filmmaker Irina Tillich has been pondering ever since she started making this documentary. I met a very special family. And of course, it was really inspiring for me as a film director to spend some time together with them. Because in fact, this film is not about the war itself. The war is only the background. And I was trying to understand what does it mean to live in the war zone for so many years. And uh, I was inspired by these people who were actually not only the victims of this war, but they tried to do something, to tell stories about themselves to other people in the world. And that was also one of the answers for my question too. Does art have at least some power in war times? Irina's film is about people who have been living inside a war between Ukraine and Russia for years now. But until last month, she did not think she would be one of those people. I had such a huge empathy to my characters, but I've never expected that this war could come to my city too. Last few weeks have changed everything. Ukraine is in fire now, and I still can't believe it is happening with us right now. In early March, she fled her home in Kyiv for a place of safety in western Ukraine. Meanwhile, the war has given new life to her film. A U.S. distributor just picked it up two years after it won a major directing award at the Sundance Film Festival. People around the world are screening the film at teach-ins and fundraisers. Irina even traveled to Lithuania with Hanna and her kids before the worst of the fighting started. We bought them tickets to Kyiv just a few days before 
the full-scale invasion has started. So they came to Kyiv all together. But I had a chance to help them to go to Lithuania. And now they are in a safe place and we are in contact all the time. And I'm very happy that they left Krasnohorivka because it's in a big danger now. Mm. And I'm not really sure that they still have their house and they still have a place where they can return. Mm. Today we talked to Irina about her work and the role that she sees in this war for art and artists on different sides of the border. Then we hear an interview Lila did with the FT's Louis Wise about his visit to sculptor Anish Kapoor's studio back in London. Kapoor is a bit of a recluse, but Louis got an inside look at his plans for this year's Venice Biennale. This is FT Weekend. I'm Taylor Nicole Rogers. The war in Ukraine's east started in the spring of 2014, shortly after the country's Maidan revolution succeeded. As a result, the corrupt pro-Russian president Viktor Yanukovych fled for Russia. And in the transition, a small group of rebels seized power in Donetsk and Luhansk. They had Russian ammunition and help from Russian soldiers. Ukraine fought back. And in February 2015, both sides signed a ceasefire agreement. But Arena's movie takes place more than two years later. That shell that landed in the house next door went against the ceasefire. And it wasn't the only one. It's turned out that the war in eastern Ukraine was only the opening act to a much, much bigger war that began last month. How does it feel to be thinking about the war in 2014 now that you're experiencing it yourself? Does the way you think about that conflict, I mean, has it changed? The war is going on for eight years and we had different times, different metamorphoses of our views. But three weeks ago, this full-scale invasion has started. And of course, it changed a lot. It's absolutely clear that they want to destroy everything that is important for us. Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian intellectuals and uh, uh, the brightest people of my country. So we are facing really barbaric war in 21st centuries. And we have this weird feeling that the whole world is watching this Russia's war against Ukraine. And I've never expected that I could be inside of this war situation. Irina talked to me from Lviv in western Ukraine, where she arrived with her son a few weeks ago. They traveled with friends who were going abroad, but during the journey, Irina decided that she could not leave her country. Our conversation started a few minutes late because sirens just went off in Lviv, but Irina chose to ignore them. It's something she can do in the relative safety of Western Ukraine, though last week Russian planes hit airport buildings just outside of the city. You mentioned that you felt like the whole world was watching. Did you feel like that? back when you were shooting your film? I mean, or do you feel like the international attention is new? You know, we felt so lonely 
at the beginning of this war. I mean, in 2014, we felt very lonely, talking honestly, because, you know, I was so tired of um, these situations. When I've been coming to different foreign countries again and again to all these festivals and roundtable discussions, etc. And I had to explain again and again what is the difference between Ukraine and Russia, why we are not the same countries, and what does it mean to be Ukrainian. I hope that all people in the world will know that Ukrainians are not the same as Russians. And I will never explain again why it is so important for me and for my people. You actually might not be able to tell when watching Irina's movie whether the footage was shot in the Russian-backed breakaway regions or on the Ukrainian side of the border. Hanna and her family and just about everyone else in the film switches back and forth between speaking Ukrainian and Russian. And the scenes are set largely inside Hanna's home, so there's not much context. Irina says as she was making the movie, she wanted to show how much resilience it took for one family to keep going with their daily life. You know, you mentioned that what was so special about this film, and I totally agree, is that this family... They really prized having those special moments together, making their film together, despite what was going on around them. So I'm wondering, are you also trying to prioritize the things that you love and a sense of normalcy as you're living through conflict now too? You know, it's very difficult to feel distant from all this situation. And I'm trying to live normal life, but it's not really possible. Because I feel so empty and de-wasted. At the same time, I'm the mother. I'm responsible for my kid. I need to help him to be protected and to have some kind of a normal life during these war times. But I feel that I'm too focused on everything which is happening right now. And... uh, I'm too focusing on all this news, but it's impossible to be distant from them, you know? Mm-hmm. I start my day every day from the news and some new photos and videos of uh, bombed uh, buildings in my Kiev and other cities. And we have these terrible stories, these tragedies every single day because they kill so many people and they do it in so cynical way that it's really difficult to get used to this situation. Irina's entire family, her parents, all her relatives are in Kyiv, where the fighting is really intense right now. Her husband, the writer Artyom Chek, is also there. He actually fought in Donbass too. He wrote a book about it. Do you think that there's something that artists have a responsibility to do in times of war? I don't think that artists should do something. But at the same time, it's impossible to be silent when you are facing such a big metamorphosis 
that are happening with your country, with your people right now. Mm -hmm. I'm observing different people around me, my colleagues, my ex-fellow Russian colleagues, especially documentary filmmakers. And you know, during this winter months, I've been checking their Facebook pages again and again. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to find at least something, some kind of a protest against this possibility of Russian invasion into my country. And, you know, all these people were silent. Mm. I think that silence could be some kind of a crime too. I should say here that Russian law now forbids anyone from using the words war or invasion in reference to Ukraine. You can get a punishment of up to 15 years in prison for doing so. But in the 10 days between the start of the war and when this new law was adopted, thousands of everyday Russians took to the streets in protest. But it's interesting hearing Irina's interpretation of Russian culture. As to my opinion, Russian culture is also guilty for many things that happen right now in Russia. Because it's not only Putin's war. Millions of people live in his kingdom of false mirrors. And he built this kingdom with the support of so many people, including film directors, writers, and many other representatives of different arts. Over the centuries, Russian culture was poisoned by imperial thoughts and superiority against Ukrainians, not to mention their fascination with the term of war. I see that some Russian intellectuals share this guilt now, and it's important to hear their voices too. And what was really interesting for me, that some of these people, they even agree with this boycotting of Russian culture because um, it has sense in the times of war. You've heard of the cultural boycott. Venues have been canceling tours by Russian artists and even performances of works by those who are long dead, like Tchaikovsky. It's controversial, but Arena supports it. There have also been calls for Russian and Ukrainian artists to discuss the war on panels together. She bristles at that idea, too. I was so frustrated when some European or other Western institutions try to invite us now together, I mean, Ukrainians and Russians, to take part in some roundtable discussions or they create some programs of support for Ukrainians and Russian victims of Putin's regime. And they try to put us on some equal level. We are not equal. We are facing Russia's war against Ukraine right now. And I believe that all these European and other institutions should have some delicacy and wisdom and they should not invite us for these face-to-face meetings right now. The war will be over, and then probably if Russians will admit their guilt, we will find some time and space for possible dialogues and discussions. 
but not now, please. Thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And now, Lila's interview with Louis Wise on the artist Anish Kapoor. If you've been to Chicago, or even if you've seen a photo of someone who's been to Chicago, you've probably seen the bean. Is it like a broad bean or a runny bean? I shouldn't be admitting this on an FT podcast. <laughs> like, is it a lima bean or is it a... Is it, you know, yeah, <laughs> is it an French English green bean? bean? No. <laughs> That's me with Louis Wise, the commissioning editor for our luxury magazine, How to Spend It. He recently wrote a profile of Anish Kapoor, the world-famous artist behind the world-famous bean. So the bean is a sculpture that is sort of synonymous with Chicago. Like anyone who ever goes to Chicago takes a selfie of themselves in their reflection in the bean, which is also reflecting the skyline of Chicago. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because he's created this kind of work which is so loved, but he, being, I guess you can say, quite an intellectual artist, was quite thrown by that. He does find it weird, yes, that millions of people have taken selfies in front of it. He's not really a selfie artist, put it that way. Anish Kapoor has become a mainstay in the modern art world. His sculptures are known for being vast, discombobulating, often spooky, where you can't see the end, or you can't tell where you are in them. Sometimes you're looking at them, but often you're looking in them or through them. At 67 years old, Kapoor is still pushing into new ground as an artist. He's preparing for a monumental show later this month. It's a centerpiece of the Venice Biennale, which is one of the art world's most important contemporary exhibitions. The show will partly be in a palace, a palazzo, that Kapoor bought and is renovating, and partly in the prestigious Gallery dell'Accademia, which is essentially Venice's Louvre. And that's a big deal because Kapoor, who's British Indian, will be the first British artist with a major exhibition there ever. It's a legacy moment. But Kapoor isn't trying to look back. Instead, he's putting out brand new work. He's using a color he's never used before. He's expanding from sculpture into painting. It seems like the closer he gets to reaching legacy status, the less he seems to want it. It's that interesting ambivalence, that ambition versus this desire to kind of stay humble and fresh. It's the typical dilemma of that kind of artist at that kind of age, frankly. Mm. How does Anish Kapoor shrink himself? I think it's just interesting managing the assumption of what your work is and what your reputation is. I think the stakes just get higher and higher. Yeah. And yeah. you could either choose to erase yourself or you just go in harder. And in a sense, he's gone in harder, but then he's kind of wrestling with what that decision means. Louis spent a day with Kapoor in his studios in South London, where more than 20 people work on his art. I've put his piece in the show notes, and you should click through, both to read it and also to get a visual of these studios, which are striking and very intense. Can you give us a brief background on who Anish Kapoor is for anyone who doesn't know? Like, what is he most famous for, and how did he get his start? He was born in Mumbai and went to kind of what we now call like as India's Eton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so had a privileged and, and very kind of interesting academic childhood and moved though to Britain when he was 19 to study art and stayed here, which is why I say he's British Indian. He's actually been knighted because he's mm. doing so many great artworks. Um, he kind of emerged like a lot of today's star artists did in the 1980s. 
and then has made kind of vast works like The Bean. There was also a big installation he did in Tate Modern's Turbine Hall, which they always have a different artist there every year. And he did this, I call it like a ginormous scarlet tuba, really, a kind of angry mm. trumpet called Marcias. And that really hogged the entire space. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm looking at photos of his installation in Turbine Hall. And for anyone who doesn't know, Tate Modern is in this big industrial building and Turbine Hall is this huge, what looks like a plane could land in it, just like a giant warehouse space. And you're right, there's been so many different installations there. And his is quite claustrophobic almost. It almost looks like I don't know, a uterus, like a huge red <laughs> yeah. sculpture that takes over the entire space. And it's very photogenic. I imagine it's also a a sculpture that people would have taken millions of photos around. And Exactly. It confronts you, you know, and I think yeah. that's what he does, these kind of big, vast sculptural gestures, we can say. It's not cozy. He's always fighting that tension between being too maybe pretty and aesthetic and then really wanting to punch you in the gut a bit. What was he like? He's notoriously private. We talked about him being knighted and he said, oh, I hate it. You know, I wish I hadn't been knighted. He got knighted mm. about 10 years ago. I think he really doesn't want to be subsumed by the whole machine. So yeah. I think he was kind of like a bit nervous in some way of kind of getting too lost. There's an element with him where he's kind of trying to um, not succumb to the hype of himself. Okay, so can you bring us to his studio with you? Can you, like, describe the moment you entered his studio and what it was like and what it was like to first meet him? I mean, it's completely crazy, the studio. And he is, you know, this kind of bustling, frankly, not very tall, but kind of, like, charismatic man mm -hmm. rushing around. It's quite fun because it's he bought one warehouse space on this kind of quiet street in South London and then just slowly bought each one on the row, on the street. Right. So now you can enter into each studio. It's kind of different pockets, different cells, as it were. There's five or six doors on the same street. And they're kind of, it's, I don't want to say it's like a hall of mirrors, but each one has a different style and has different work in it. So there's one really huge space at first, which is full of these ginormous red angry paintings he's doing. I mean, it's kind of like talk to your therapist about this, but these <laughs> gin ginormous red, you know, angry kind of like visceral things. So there's wow. that one. And then there's another room with these cases full of his Vanta, well, Kapoor black sculptures. He famously bought a, a black pigment a few years ago that was called Vanta black, one of the blackest, if not the blackest pigment in the world, and developed it himself and renamed it Kapoor black. Okay, Louis, can you tell me a little bit more about um, this extremely dark material, like this sort of like the, the black stuff, the yes. idea that he bought a color that's the blackest version of black? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a little baby controversy at the time. There was this kind of, at the time, called Vanta Black, and he basically bought it and helped develop it and really did, in fairness, I think, help expand its possibilities. It's so toxic and special. It's not just like a black that comes out of a tube, to be clear. Mm. It's kind of this extremely dense black that can only be kind of used in certain laboratory conditions. So he got into trouble with other artists because for some people, it just felt wrong that you were hogging a color, if we can put it that way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, it's not up to you to say what a color is. Mm -hmm. I think he feels a bit misunderstood about it. He kind of said, there's no controversy, there's no controversy. So he bought and owned the rights to this blackest color ever made 
And then in response, people got angry. Another artist made it like a super yeah. black that's even yeah. blacker. And, and then... a pink that anyone in the world can use except Anish Kapoor. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it's so petty. Yeah. And what does it say about his art? Like, how does it reflect him, the, the fact that the thing that he chose to buy the exclusive rights to was the darkest color in the world? It's so pure. It's so extreme. Mm-hmm. It's a bit toxic. Mm. <laughs> it reflects infinity. It looks like space. It plays with your eye. You know, because when I was looking at them, you, you come onto these boxes and basically from some angles, you don't know what's there. And then as you turn around, you realize there's a circle or a triangle or something. Oh, but wow. because there's just no relief there, your mind, so yeah. that is absolutely kapoor. Half the time I walked around that studio, I had a headache, frankly, because mm. either, either it smelled so intense or it looked so intense. You know, it's mm. kind of like your eyes were always being kind of recalibrated. Kapoor is going to be the first British artist to be showcased in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Venice, which seems like a very big deal. It is a big deal. It's like the the Louvre in Paris or like the National Gallery. It's a very venerable old-style gallery. It's not kind of this modern new gallery where he can turn up. It's really inviting him to enter art history, which Mm. arguably he already has. And I think that's a testament to kind of the type of work he makes and just the amount of stuff he's done. I mean, in some sense, also, it's a measure of the times in that now those kind of, dare we say, old school museums are very willing to invite in contemporary artists. It's a really good PR coup for the the museum. Mm-hmm. But equally, it's really great for him because he's just essentially entered into like the canon, you know, automatically. Yeah. Is it an interesting point where he's doing these kind of, I guess, career defining shows, but he doesn't want them to be kind of. I don't want to say tombstones, but that kind of thing. I don't think for him this is a full stop, put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it struck me that when you were talking about him having bought this palazzo in Venice, he was saying that it wasn't about his legacy. It sort of wasn't about him looking back at his life. And you said to him, can someone really be a world-famous artist in your 60s and buy a Venetian palazzo and not call it a legacy project? I know. I was like, come (laughs) on. And he was like, he laughed and said, you know, fair, fair, fair. Hate it, but fair. And, you know, Louis, a lot of traditional and classic museums are now doing these more modern exhibitions. But having Anish Kapoor's work, like these enormous things appearing in Venice. I'm curious what that's going to look like. I mean, it's going to be pretty crazy because most of the pictures in that gallery are kind of gorgeous titians of like Mary Magdalene, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and various right. virgins and, and popes. <laughs> I mean, obviously Venice has the Biennale, so it's the home of kind of a lot of contemporary art coming there. I think it will bring a whole new set of people to that gallery. And you're going to get these ginormous, huge, angry slashes of red that are totally different to kind of the gorgeous Renaissance pictures there. So it'll be a fun clash, I think. Louis, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, This was wonderful. Thank you. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please keep in touch. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, your questions, your compliments, your ideas. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at at ftweekendpod. You can find links to everything we've mentioned in this episode in the show notes. And I really recommend that you go out and see Arena's film, The Earth is Blue as an Orange, if you can. 
The FT is making key Ukraine coverage free to read to keep you informed. You can find that link in the show notes, as well as our best offers on a subscription to the FT if you'd like to support our journalism and get access to all of our reporting. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. I'm Taylor Nicole Rogers, and here's our team. Katya Komkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer, with original music by Metaphor Music. The show this week was mixed by Tommy Bazarian. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Thank you, take care, and we'll find each other next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.